It is seemingly an undeniable truth that aging is inevitable. But what if everything you've been taught to believe about aging is wrong? In a groundbreaking book called Lifespan, David Sinclair, Harvard professor, biologist, and an authority on longevity, reveals a bold new theory of why we age. His work reveals breakthroughs that demonstrate how we can reverse it. And in the book, he shatters the myth that as we grow into our 70s, it diminishes the capacity for our body to perform at a standard below what our brain wants us to do. What he describes is a universe of people in our world that don't just prolong their lives, they prolong their vitality. And what is it about these people that we admire and strive to emulate as each of us wrestles with our own aging process? What I have come to conclude in my 61 years on this planet is that there are certain people that Sinclair depicts who underscore the Frank Sinatra smash hit recorded in 1953 that goes something like this. And if you should survive to 105, look at all you'll derive out of being alive. And here is the best part. You have a head start if you are among the very young at heart. And that perfectly describes today's guest. He has many talents, but is best known for his accomplishments as a professional tennis player and as a coach. And as a professional player, he has enjoyed the number one U.S. national ranking in every age group from 35 to 70. And since his All-American days at Rice University, he is more than six decades into a love affair with the sport he has cultivated since he was nine. Born with tennis in his DNA, his life has taken some interesting twists and turns, only to bring him back to a game that fuels his passion that keeps him young at heart. Jimmy Parker, welcome to A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. Thanks. Great to be here. Oh, it's good. And thank you, Jimmy. As I consider all of the things that you have done in the sport of tennis, could you please, before we even get into it, what is it like to step on the professional court facing other great tennis players, recognizing only one of you is going to win that day? Well, you kind of hit on the crux of the uh, kind of, I, I guess, the nature of sport in a way. I mean, you can almost say, I've heard it said that sport is the doing of the unnecessary better than somebody else. And when you say that, it's like, you know, really what, um, what real function is there in our survival to sport? And that's kind of a cynical view, but I think that... Uh, <laughs> When you, you know, when you're talking about competition, it brings out so much richness in the just, you know, if you can generalize about the human experience, I mean, you've got all of these factors that are operating at once and you're trying to be calm, but intense. You're trying to be uh, tenacious, but peaceful. You're trying to be competitive without getting overwrought. You're, you're, you're balancing. And so, um, I, I love that process. I mean, I love the challenge that that presents. And I think that uh, one of the things that's kept me going is that I haven't mastered yet. So I, so I still have, you know, I'm still learning stuff. And, uh, 
you know, I think that will continue for as long as I continue to play. But I think that's really as much of it. I mean, in the long run, who really remembers who won and who lost? But I think it's the process that you're really engaged in. And, you know, it's really the, the richness is in the journey more than anything else. Yeah, I think for those of us who were never good enough to play on a pro court, we sit back and we watch these titans coming to the court. And it's a clash among incredibly talented people. But what I tend to remember is who had the fighting spirit, who, you know, who, who in fact, I remember, I think a couple of days ago at Wimbledon, there was a, a player who was fined for not playing hard enough mm-hmm. and and you remember that and you caught by that as then you jimmy as you have had the luxury of being both a player and a coach if if you were to advise someone who was going to be a tennis player would you start with that mental process or would you start with the physical skill set or both oh, what a great question um, you know, since they, they go hand in hand, I mean, I think that uh, you're really combining the mental and the emotional and the physical and even the spiritual, you know, as, as a tennis player and probably as an athlete in general. But um, I think that as a coach, your job is to try to get through to somebody in a way that allows them to transform themselves. And so the process of becoming a player is, you know, kind of the uh, self, the process of self-discovery. Right. And, uh, you know, I think they're slightly different because I found that as a coach, uh, it's really critical that you get on the same wavelength as, as the person that you're, and everybody has different wavelengths. So what motivates one player may or may not motivate the next player. I think that that's the advantage for me in that I know what motivates me. So right. it's a little simpler when you know, I'm tasked with trying to make myself into a better player and transform myself uh, in all the ways that that entails. I mean, it, it's the physical, but it's it's all the mental and emotional stuff that goes on and trying to balance. I mean, that's one of the things I think that really comes out of uh, a sport like tennis, probably a lot of other sports, but I don't know them as well. I played a lot of sports as a kid, but not at the professional level. So, you know, my expertise really is uh, more from the game of tennis. And so I know that, you know, I love watching other sports and I love seeing the similarities between what's required to become a great basketball player and what required to become a great golfer. And some people say, you know, it can't be a sport if you can smoke and drink while you're doing it. So sometimes <laughs> golf doesn't count, but <laughs> right. we won't tell the golfers that, but I'm with you because what we know is on the tennis court, you got on one hand, you got a, uh, a tennis racket. On the other hand, you got to throw the ball to the racket so you don't have the luxury of eating and drinking. <laughs> Jimmy, it, it sounds like, and for our listeners, many of them have careers, and it sounds like you are describing what could be a metaphor for just about any career. But I think in this day and age, we seem to be hyper-focused on the physical embodiment, the skill set of what drives your career. But you're describing that's is that half- Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's a great book called The Sports Gene, and what it's attempting to do is determine how much is nature and how much is nurture, how much is innate ability that was in your DNA and how much is your your training. 
And I hate to say this, but I mean, at the end of the book, I felt like I knew that at the beginning of the book, what they come up with is it's both. And I think we all know that. I mean, you know, there are some people that no matter how much they would want to, they're never going to play in the NBA. And then, you know, we've got other people that we realize, hey, this guy has the physical attributes of a good basketball player. So I do think that there really is a a genetic component. But um, given that, I think that where the action is, is um, in in the mental and emotional aspects of the game. And you'll hear great players talk about like a lot of times on the commentary, like you're you're listening to great ex-players watch these current crop of people that are playing Wimbledon now, and they're they're saying, you know, what he really needs to do is focus or relax or uh, figure out what's working and what's not, or and those are all mental gymnastics that a player has to go through in order to arrive at a way to win, and and so. Yes, I think the part that we see uh, makes us think that's where the action is. So we say, well, we're seeing that he's missing his forehand or he's got a great backhand or he's a you know, wonderful um, tactician and that's stuff that's visible. But what is behind that and what really underpins it is what's going through the minds and the emotions of the people that you're watching. And that's something you can't see. Walk us, you can read, but you can't, you know, you can't see it. Well, you can see something's not right. I've seen Andy Murray sometimes. It seems like he was his own worst enemy. He's out there and he hits the ball very well, but sometimes you can sense it's negative self-talk. Did you as a player have to learn how to get through that? Oh, absolutely. And I'm still not very good at it, I don't think. I mean, I, uh, I remember Kyrgios, who's known for being a little flaky, you know, he said to one interviewer, he said, there's a battle going on inside my head. (laughs) And I can empathize with that. But I think that all of us really want to uh, be excellent. But it's, you know, there are hurdles to to jump over and hoops to go through in order to arrive at that. And I think that that's the process that really involves the life skills that you're talking about that apply to all the other things that that we do we we all need patience you know we all need dedication we all need discipline we need to be able to see the the relationship you know cause and effect and i think that that's where what engaged me about coaching was that i felt as if first of all not very many of the people that you coach are ever going to play the pro tour <laughs> any more than any high school basketball coach is going to send very many guys to the NBA. Right. It's just the numbers. Right. But if you're preparing somebody to deal with those issues on the court, my experience has been that it applies off the court. These are better humans. You know, they're more complete people when they go through the demands of trying to get the most out of themselves. Right. And it probably won't take if that's not what they're about. I mean, I've seen a lot of kids, for instance, that seemingly had uh, great potential, great ability. They just weren't that motivated or that interested. They're not going to get to the pro tour, you know, so I've seen kids with a little bit less of natural ability, maybe with the burning desire to do whatever it takes. And that's the one that has the least the possibility that they can make it. Right. No, we, we tend to, as we're raising our children, you, know, you see what, whatever everyone is doing, they're so focused on skills 
But when a kid is freaking out, they're told, stop freaking out, and, and that, that, that doesn't seem to work. Well, Jimmy, you took an interesting turn, and I think this is a fascinating one, where at Rice University, while you were an All-American tennis player, it was in the, during the Vietnam War, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're becoming a pilot. How did that happen? Well, uh, I was in grad school, actually. I'd finished at Rice and uh, uh, during Vietnam. And so my draft board um, was uh, in an area where a lot of the people that lived there went to college. And so there were fewer guys that were not currently engaged academically. And so by the time I got to graduate school, they decided that they <laughs> needed me in the military. And so I kind of made a deal where I had an extra year to finish my master's and then uh, then I'd go in but that gave me time to uh, take the test for the Air Force and I wasn't I at that point I didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, being a professional tennis player at that time was really not an option because there were maybe three or four players in the world that were making a living at it barnstorming and, and you know small pro tournaments that had three or four guys in them sometimes so I never really thought about tennis as being an option for me. Right. And so um, I thought, well, being an airline pilot might not be a bad thing. So if I learned to fly airplanes, I, that might be something I could do when I got out. And actually that would uh, give me some free time to play tennis tournaments. So that was <laughs> kind of my thinking in graduate school. So uh, the when I went into the Air Force, uh, I was in for almost six years and managed to stay out of Vietnam and uh, really got to fly pretty much worldwide. So it was a great experience. But um, in the meantime, tennis, actually this is kind of a, <laughs> a uh, asterisk footnote type thing, but as it turned out, I played the first open tennis match ever played you know, in the United States. And I was able to play the first US Open, which was 1968. A month later, uh, I had military fatigues on and I was at a boot camp, but um, that's, you know, where I happened to play Rosewall, who was, I think, maybe second seed that year, but uh, I played a decent match. It was on center court. I was excited just to be able to do that. Yeah. But honestly, In Flushing Meadow, I'll say to the New Yorkers in New Yorker, in New York, no less. Exactly. <laughs> so the, um, but my thinking at that time was, well, I guess that's the end of my tennis career. Right. And then in the next six years, with the advent of open tennis, it became possible to make a living as a tennis pro or somebody in the game of tennis in various capacities because the number of people that could actually make a living, it, you know, just kind of exponentially expanded during that time. Yeah. And so by the time I got out, uh, you know, I, I instead of going straight to the airlines, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm a little old to start playing the tour again, mm -hmm. but, um, I sure wouldn't mind coaching. And so my alma mater hired me to be the coach there. And so that was, I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll try this. If I don't like it, I'll go see if I can get an airline job, but I never, you know, I, I, I just kept I, playing here, and kept know, coaching. Here we are. Yeah. Well, well, Jimmy, help, help us understand the contrast because what you've already pointed out is the contrast between intense and quiet, you know, high and low and, and all the, the battles that we play in our head as you were playing at a very high level, you were now coaching people, whatever their ambitions were. How did you, or what were the challenges in trying to get inside the head of someone who may display the prowess that you're looking for, but not the mental fortitude? 
Well, you know, since we're all individuals, every player has different strengths and weaknesses. And coaches that think that they can pretty much uniformly um, develop practices and guidelines and policies for their team, I think that that's a, a hard way to get to each individual's issues, you know. Right. So one guy may have um, problems concentrating and another guy may have problems with his confidence and another guy may have trouble finishing matches that he's ahead in. And, you know, somebody else is um, always psyched out about having a weak backhand if that's the way they think about it, you know. So right. I think that um, the challenge for me, I, I think part of it was I was so self-taught myself that uh, I, I never really had a coach and my college coach was a good player not necessarily seeking out all the opportunities to actually give input to the team so I I didn't have a whole lot of background for coaching other than my own experience and so mm -hmm. I'd always been a, a reader and I'd always been curious and so you know when I played some of these guys that are, you know, the, the household names of the past, the legends, literally, I, I've looked upon that as an opportunity to pick their brain. And so I, I think I had been preparing myself to be a coach, whether I knew it or not, uh, all along. And so I felt like I could come up with different things. I always enjoyed the challenge of uh, not just then, you know, later on, I was uh, at a club in Houston, where I had a lot of juniors with uh, pretty good ability. And, you know, I, I really felt like though each one's different. So I got to figure out a way to get through to this one and that one. And, and so I loved it because it was kind of right up my alley and it was more like something I never expected to get paid for. <laughs> right. Imagine that you're having fun. You're at work in yeah. shorts and you're getting paid. That's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a guy that worked with me at the club in Houston and, uh, he said, yeah, I never worked a day of my life. And he was a <laughs> tennis pro who same age as me. Neither one of us ever expected that tennis was going to be a way to make a living, et cetera. You know? Well, let's shift into that, though, because while we've talked a lot about, about the mental game, it is remarkable at the age you are 78, if I can calculate that correctly. And yet I know many 50-year-olds that unfortunately have to deal with the injuries and you know, no matter what they're trying to do. How, is it, how have you physically, from the 30s to the 40s, all the way through to the 70s, how have you kept, in spite of whatever injuries may be, how do you keep the fighting spirit and the physicality to keep doing it? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure I can even know myself. I, uh, it seems like it's part of my makeup, you know, whether, and it, you know, part of it is I've had such good experience. I mean, I just have led such a fortunate, blessed life. Uh, and had so many friends and so many places I've seen and, you know, experiences I've had over the years that it, it's something that I like doing. So it, it's not like it's this grind, you know, like, oh, I got to go get ready for to play another tournament, you know. Right. And, and that actually is an issue with players on the tour that are trying to make a living. And um, this is their one shot. You know, right. they, they have a relatively narrow window. Yeah. Uh, Federer has kind of changed our concept of what that window might look like. But right. for the most part, uh, there aren't, you know, for a professional athlete, I think the average longevity in the NFL is something like four years. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, so there, there's that pressure to do as well as you can for a short amount of time. And I think that for some uh, players, that's a sprint. And at the end of that sprint, they're, they're, they're done. They're, they've had enough. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, the work required to get to the upper echelon in any sport is so demanding. Senior tennis is a little bit easier because we don't have as many tournaments. I probably play an average of a tournament a month or so. And uh, it's not, you know, like our living is not as tied up in it as, it, as you would be if you were on, a, on, the, on the tour. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, for me, it's, it's promoted a very healthy lifestyle because it's been an incentive to stay in shape, right. to eat right, to get enough sleep, to yeah. the basic stuff. Right. And, and it really, uh, it is a great lesson in cause and effect because you know that if you put on 10 pounds or you stop working out or you, you know, lose your um, enthusiasm, the impact on your ability to play good tennis is immediate. I mean, it's not like, you know, you, you like, you don't, can't figure out what happened, you know, <laughs> right. so, uh, the answer, you know, the answer. <laughs> so I think that that's really been an incentive because I just enjoy the travel, the friends and what's happened, I think, uh, in a way is that there, there were some jerks out there that, uh, you know, would cheat you or, try to gain an edge or try to psych you out or whatever it was yeah and uh for the most part those guys are gone because um who wants to go to a tournament where nobody really wants to hang out with you nobody wants to really talk with you nobody wants to go to dinner with you yeah uh, so those guys have sort of you know been eliminated just by natural selection almost you know <laughs> right and so the the rest of us that are still left we all share all these experiences and, and, you know, some of them go back, like there's a guy that's in my age group that he and I played each other for the first time when we were 13 oh, together wow. in every decade of our lives. And, oh, that's and great. you know, we, we've kind of witnessed each other's, um, you know, successes and failures. We played on us teams together Yeah, and it's just a unique experience. I know, you know, people, from having played them on the tennis court better than I know my next door neighbors because I see them under duress. Right. I want to put them under duress. Right. <laughs> That's your job that day. That's my job. You know? <laughs> right. But how they respond and how fair they are and, you know, just whether they can, you know, we've all had to roll with the punches. If you don't, then, you know, you get knocked out. So, so all of us share this process that we're all trying to make ourselves better. And I can tell you when we get out there on the court, it's competitive. Yeah. But then after the match is over, we're just as likely to go have a beer. So right. it's a wonderful experience. Yeah. Jim, Jimmy, I, I want to switch a little bit. You have had the pleasure of putting on a uniform and serving your country and your duty may have been at 37,000 feet at a higher elevation, but you've also served your country in, 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 as a professional tennis player representing the United States. What is that like? Oh, that is just the ultimate experience. It's a, uh, it's a different when they say advantage United States than when they're saying your name right and um the i mean the first time i played on a team it was one of the highlights of my entire uh tennis experience 
Yeah. And uh, the fact that you are now, usually there are four of us on a team. And so um, the four of us have been bashing heads against each other for most of our lives, a lot of times. And so we've seen each other as competitors and opponents, but, but never before as teammates. And now all of a sudden we're all working for, and it, there really is a unique component. And I have to say that the guys that we play from the other countries, uh, it's the same for them. I mean, you know, there really is a lot of national pride, but the experience that links us all together, some of my best buddies play for other countries. Right. Tennis is such an international game, yeah. which, which makes it wonderful. And so, um, I mean, even to the point where, you know, if I were to travel in Germany or Switzerland or, or Sweden or somewhere, yeah. I could call somebody and, and say, can I stay with you? Yeah. <laughs> Dennis, you know, yeah. so uh, the fact of representing the United States is just um, a wonderful experience in itself. And yeah. then the experiences you have in the process of trying to win a world championship for the United States, when you win it, it's sort of like you're on top of the world and it's, it's senior tennis for God's sake, but it, it feels to us like it's Davis cup or feels like it's, you know, world cup or, you know, and literally it is, I mean, it's like uh, the world championships in tennis usually attracts, we'll have like, 20 countries in the competition yeah. and and we're all fighting for the first you know for the gold medal so yeah. um you know we all kind of share that experience and it's uh once again one of the things that you know most attracts me to continuing to play at this age well one thing for for many of our listeners and viewers who may be tennis fans themselves we have watched an incredible evolution from 30 years ago with wooden rackets and you know if you hit 110 miles an hour serve you were fast um, i don't think i ever did but no god knows i'm just i'm lucky to put it in play how how have you coached others as given this enormous, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster. What adjustments as, as a coach has been necessary to keep your, your students and clients at that level? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question too. And um, it's, there's no question that the players today are better than we were at, at the same level 30 years ago. Right. And uh, the way that they hit the ball, uh, the way that they work out. I mean, there's so many facets to what a pro on the tour is doing now that a lot of the older players would have thought, really, you do that, you know? <laughs> so, you know, so they're, they're on diets and they're working out uh, other than on the tennis court. Um, they're studying a lot more film. There's a lot more information out there. The metrics of tennis are a lot more um, highly developed yeah. and if you don't pay attention to that you, you get left in the dust yeah. and so you know the challenge for me is being an old school guy I recognize that if I were starting now I would play like the people now not like I play now you know I, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s and actually I have to say that my style of play has had to evolve just reflecting the demands of aging and so forth but Probably in college, I went to the net behind my serve 90% of the time. Right. Now I go to the net 15%. <laughs> 10, it flipped. <laughs> right. So it really has. Yeah. And, and the way the game is played now with modern equipment and uh, 
modern strings, for instance, make a big difference. And the level of coaching, you know, they'll have a nutritionist, they'll have a guy that stretches them, they'll have a guy that works out with them, they'll have a couple of hitting partners. That's an entourage right. that nobody could afford when there was no prize money yeah. or when people were playing for the cup. So um, that has just necessitated a change in the way coaching is conducted and it's much better now than it ever was and it will well, continue to get better we watched Djokovic win a lot of tournaments and every time that he's on tv it points up to a box and there must be about eight or nine people up there all in the service of his victory and whatever it is they're doing i gotta give him some kudos uh jimmy j just a couple other things here um what have you over the years as as you now coach and you live in santa fe new mexico and you coach in a place where tennis isn't it's not the biggest part of the psyche of New Mexico. Do I have that right? I've been there. I just don't yeah. remember it being a part of that culture. It's hard to uh, become a top player living in New Mexico. There's no okay. question about it. And so, yeah, and I don't coach that much anymore. I teach a few hours a week and it's mostly people that ask me right. to give them lessons. And so I'm not in the um, business of developing players as I, as I once was. So I just enjoy trying to help somebody play better. <laughs> and yeah. it kind of gets back to, you know, your word of transformation. In a way, you're trying to transform people's attitude toward their game, um, what they can do on the court. There are all these different avenues to improve somebody in there. You know, I mean, I think that there are, first of all, four main areas that you could improve in, no matter who you are. You can improve your strokes. Mm -hmm. You can improve your conditioning. You can improve your ability to select tactics and strategy, and you can improve your ability to control your own emotions and arrive at a, what I would call an ideal performance state. I got to give credit to a guy named Jim Lair, who's done a lot of research uh, across many sports, but there's an ideal performance state for every sport. And that involves all this mix of physicality and mental and emotional factors and so forth. And so um, here in New Mexico, there are just not enough good players for other good players to, to play against. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that, you know, a lot of uh, players have come, there have been great players come out of New Mexico, but that's the exception right. rather than the rule. Whereas for instance, when, when the Aussies back when I was uh, playing really dominated the game of tennis and they had you know, one champion out of Laver and Rohode and Rosewall and Newcomb and Roach and Emerson and, you know, they, you can just go on. All the way up to Pat, Patrick Rafter, all the way. You, you just, Absolutely. Yeah. And then it them, they all played with each other. So right. the one generation, yeah, and we're talking about a generation, maybe three or four years, but they're playing with guys that are three or four years younger. That's the next wave. And, and that's in a way what it takes. And that was really kind of without me even knowing it was happening. When I grew up in St. Louis, there were so many guys that got to be great players mm -hmm. that I was playing against some of the best, you know, the future greats right. when I was just a kid. So that's, that was kind of like the secret sauce that St. Louis yes. had at that time. New Mexico, un unfortunately, does not have that. So it is more difficult. Well, there's a lot here. And just, just to conclude, Jimmy, what you're describing in, in your game of tennis is a metaphor, sounds like, for your life. Is that a fair conclusion? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that that's what's kept me going. If you, you know, you're saying, you know, why do you, 
why do you keep playing when you're a geriatric case? And, uh, <laughs> you're, you're doing fine. <laughs> and I, I do think that that's it, that I, that I still learn stuff uh, about myself, yeah. uh, about how to be a better me. But um, overall, it's so engaging. I mean, it forces you into the present. Right. You, you, I mean, the, the dead past and the imagined future have no role, you know, on the tennis court. And so, you know, to be fully, what, what are the experiences that we um, come back to? They're the ones that engage us, that pull us into the present moment, which is the only place we can ever do anything. And in tennis, that's reflected by perfect timing. If you are totally present, nothing else is distracting. It's a, it's a, it's a high in itself just to be that engaged in what is the ever flowing present moment. Yeah. Well, let, let's leave our audience then with, with some takeaways, because you've already provided a few about the need to be present. We hear it a lot, but with all the distractions and all the devices, I am finding even for my college students, it's hard for them to try to stay focused because the weapons of mass distraction are prevalent. <laughs> They're just everywhere. It's just you have this. Everything is competing against their mind. And yet one seeks a career that is highly specialized, whether it's tennis or you're a Wall Street trader or a fireman, whatever it is, requires tremendous presence at the moment because the past and the future have no consequence. You're fighting a fire, right? Absolutely. So, so if you were to, if, if, if a 21-year-old came to you, let's leave it with there, and they asked you, Jimmy... I am contemplating kicking my game into a higher gear, whatever that game is, and it may not be tennis. What would what advice would you leave them with before we sign off with our audience? Yes, well, I think that the first thing that you would do is that because that question has so many layers to it, that you'd have to first have it clearly in mind what you want. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, you've got to be able to ask for what you want. And that would be the first step is making clear exactly what it is that I think would would make me happy. And I think that, um, you know, in a way, I think a lot of people look upon, well, I'll make myself happy once I'm successful, that'll that'll make me happy. And I almost think it's the reverse. I think it's like, you have to be happy in order to be successful. Yeah, it's funny <laughs> how we tend to have that, that backwards. Would be, that would be kind of the orientation that I would start with because I think too many people are looking to things on the outside that, that that's what's going to make me great. That's what's, you know, the success is what's going to uh, complete me. And mm-hmm. I think that there's more work internally <laughs> required than externally. Yeah, well, let's leave it at there because I think the the it seems to be I don't know what they call it the American disease. I'll be happy when you know yeah. I get the bigger car, the next house, the this, the that. But your point, and I couldn't agree with you more, is to flip the model. Work on your happiness. Mm-hmm. If and if, if you're not happy, you'll never be a professional tennis player. I suppose. you're just you're never going to find a place. Yeah. You got to like it. Right. You got to be a launch pad that you're happy to be involved in. And Jimmy, where, where, I know you're in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Do people, can people reach out to you if, if, if they want to hear more about what you're doing? Of course. Yeah. And where do we find you? Do you, are you on social media at all? Uh, I'm really not a social media guy. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, think so, but. But, uh, 
as you probably know from <laughs> arranging our interview. Yeah. But, uh, no, my uh, my email address is parkertennis at aol.com. I'm happy to give that up. P R K R tennis. Those are the consonants in in Parker. Parker tennis. And uh, and I you know I'm available through a lot of the other professional organizations. In fact, I should mention that. Uh, I'm the past president of an organization called, called the National Senior Men's Tennis Association, and I can be reached through them, NSMTA. So there you go. Also, for anyone who wants to hear or learn more about Jimmy, all you got to do is Google Jimmy Parker, and what you see is a couple words, the legend. You know, there, there are so many different ways to describe you, Jimmy, and it's been a real pleasure. One, getting to know you. Your friend Bob Littman was on the show a couple months ago, he very much talked about the mind body, the heart connection, mm-hmm. that, that transcendental state about that 20 seconds in between every point. That's mm-hmm. when you live in the present and you're very much reinforcing that. And I, I love bringing that to our audience because I think we need more of that. We can teach us skills all day long, but mm-hmm. that's not going to get you up the mountain. Anybody can skill. Yeah, Bob, up Bob has done the work in the trenches. He, I, I really admire what he's been able to make of himself no question so to our listeners you have listened to and watched on youtube a climb to the top stories of transformation i'm chuck garcia you can always reach me on on the contact tab of chuckgarcia.com we're also on twitter and all the other social media so thank you always for your questions and particularly for tuning in uh, jimmy parker jimmy thank you so much for coming on it's been a real pleasure and and helping to bring your story to light in a hope a different way. Thanks, Chuck. You're quite welcome. And I am tuning out. Thank you very much to our listeners. We appreciate you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.